quickly let you know of a couple more changes that have happened in the life of the church. Uh, as you know, we've had several staff openings, and as, as of this past week, we have filled them all. So uh, you know that Josh Huff is coming to replace uh, Josh when they get ready to go to language school and head out of the country. Um, Lucia got a job teaching at uh, Chattanooga Christian School. She was our nursery coordinator, and uh, God has uh, raised up for us to roll uh, Lucia's nursery coordinating into Shannon uh, Bowler's uh, uh, directorship of the uh, preschool. They were, she works in the same rooms with the same supplies and the same materials down the same hall with a lot of the same kids. And so it has worked for us to go ahead and move her from part-time to full-time and to absorb that position. And so Shannon is the new nursery coordinator as well as preschool. Uh, and lastly, um, as Betsy moved out of town and the children's ministry directorship was open, we have uh, offered and she has accepted uh, the position to Julie Armstrong, who is coming on um, in the uh, same capacity as Betsy, and she started a couple days ago. So uh, here we go. But God has been gracious. He's provided, I believe, all of our needs, and we are not only fully staffed, but well staffed. And as we press in, I'm excited for what God will do as we press forward. This morning as we come to God's Word, we are coming to a passage that is, I think, um, rich and powerful. At least it speaks to me. Uh, it speaks to my soul as Jesus speaks to us about what it means to know Him and to love Him and serve Him. Uh, as He gives to us this image of a grain of wheat this morning. We're in John chapter 12, verses 20 to 26. John chapter 12, starting in verse 20. Hear then the word of God. And now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them and he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And if anyone serves me, my Father will honor him. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to sit at your feet this morning and to learn of you. Would you speak to us of eternal things? Would you speak to us of those things that matter? Would you speak with power into our lives? Would you change us? And would you make servants, create servants, children of God, servants of Christ, lovers of your kingdom, awaken in us a desire to know and to love and serve you. For these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the time of the Passover. Crowds are gathering in Jerusalem. Jesus has made his trek from, uh, from the outskirts on in toward the city. He stops in Bethany and visits from his friend and has a little bit of a dinner party with them. 
And then he heads in the next morning into Jerusalem in this triumphal procession. The crowds have gathered and Jesus is there as part of the crowds and people are there from all over the Roman world. In verse 20, we're told that now they, among those who went up to worship at the feast are some Greeks. Right? Some Gentile proselytes. That means Gentiles who have come to worship the God of Israel and who participate in the religion in their festivals and in the full worship. And so when Israel gathers in Jerusalem for the high feasts and as they have gathered for this time of worship around the Passover, these proselytes, these God worshipers come from all over the empire. One of the attractions this year is Jesus. And they want to see him. So they come to Philip. They come, Philip is a Greek name. Philip and Andrew are the only two Greek names among the apostles. So maybe they picked him out. They said he's from Bethsaida, which is an area that is right near the Decapolis, which is a, is a strongly Greek area of Palestine. And so, so maybe there was some affinities. They come to Philip and they tell him, hey, we would very much like to see Jesus. But apparently there's some uncertainty about whether Jesus would want to see them. They are Gentiles. They are Greeks. They are foreigners. They are from outside. And so there must be some concern because Philip goes to talk to Andrew and they have a conversation and then Philip and Andrew go and talk to Jesus. They go and ask him. But Jesus doesn't answer the question, does he? Right? We're told Andrew and Philip go and they went and told Jesus. The end of 22. And Jesus answers them and says, so he, so he doesn't answer the question about seeing the Gentiles. He actually reacts to the question. He, he reacts to this news that these Gentile Greeks have come and asked to see him, that are seeking him out. And he reacts to this news. And he actually speaks to the significance of this event and the, this question rather than actually answering whether he would see them. In fact, they're never mentioned again. We have no idea if Jesus ever talked to them, if they're part of the crowd listening to this answer. You know, that is all washed away in Jesus' response and his reaction to this. And his reaction is, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Right? The hour has come. How many times in Jesus' ministry has he told the folks that have come to him, and they, even when his mother asked him to turn water into wine, he tells her, my hour has not yet come. Right? There, there are times, several times, multiple times through his ministry where they tell him, and he says, no, it's, my time is not yet. The hour has not yet come. Don't tell anybody about this. Keep it under wraps for now. Keep it on the down low for now. How often does he say this? Until this time that he comes to Jerusalem. And he comes in in a triumphal procession. He doesn't try to tone it down. He doesn't tell anyone not to tell anybody. He doesn't say, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David. And Jesus doesn't say anything. He's ushered in. No more is it hiding it under a bushel, so to speak. No more. And Jesus says, as they come looking for him, my hour has come. Greeks, Gentiles have come to Jerusalem seeking Jesus. And he sees in this event something important that is a mark, that is a sign that in fact his hour has come for now the Son of Man must be glorified. Time is upon him. In 19, the verse before the passage we read, the Pharisees say to one another, you see that, he's, that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. 
right? And this is where in just after three years of ministry and the gospel flowing out in this, this ever-widening circle that the whole world is starting to be touched. The nations are coming from the east and from the west and they want to see Jesus. The hour has come for the gospel to go to the world. There's a great, this is the time, as he says, it is, it is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. There is, this is the time for the harvest to begin and it begins with the first fruits of the nations as they come to Him. Jesus sees this as a momentous beginning of this Passion Week and the glorifying of the Son. And they want to see Jesus. They came from somewhere in Greece, Athens, Thessalonica, Philippi, somewhere in Greece. And they want to see Jesus. And I would ask you this morning as you're sitting there and hearing as I get started here and the songs we have sung and the prayers that we have prayed, why did you come this morning? Why are you here? Did you come to see Jesus? Is that why you came? Is that why you are here? I would suggest that any other motive, any other reason, and we are misled, we are, we are going down the wrong road. We come for wrong reasons. We gather to see Jesus week by week, morning by morning. We gather to see Jesus in His Word. We gather to, to hear His Word. We gather to hear the Gospel. We gather to see Jesus, to be changed by Jesus, to give ourselves in worship to Jesus. As we're singing the songs, we, we see and exalt and love and give ourselves to the Lord Jesus. That's why I come week by week is to have the opportunity to hear and to see and to lift my heart unto Him. If you truly want to see Christ, it requires an unconditional of our, uh, surrender of ourselves to Him. Not only week by week, but day by day and moment by moment. I believe that that's what this whole passage is about. Because as Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be glorified, then He gives three statements in a row. Uh, these expressions, and each one builds on the other. It's almost, in, I picture it in my head as I'm reading this and studying it and thinking about it like a little pyramid. And verse 24 is that base of the pyramid as Jesus speaks and gives a general principle that about himself and others. And then in verse 25, as the pyramid goes up, he applies that principle to us. And then in verse 26, as he brings out, I think, the point of the spear and, and drives in the application of where he wants to go with it in 24, 25, and 26. These are building expressions where he applies and further explains each one that comes before. So in verse 24, we get the first one, the foundational one of the three-tiered pyramid. Truly, truly. In other words, listen to me when I say this. This is important and this is true and this is foundational. Truly, I, I say to you guys, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it dies, it bears much fruit. There's a true mystery in nature. 
And we see it in so many ways as we look for illustrations. And as Jesus looks for illustrations to talk about who he is and what he is doing in the Christian life in so many ways, we go to nature because many of the mysteries are built in there. Illustrations of the gospel, illustration of God's work and his ways built into the nature that he himself has created, the handiwork of his hands. And Jesus looks to nature and he says, it's like this, this mystery in nature, how abundant life can come from death. How a harvest can come from a grain of wheat. A grain of wheat must fall to the ground and die or it abides alone. But it remains alone and unfruitful because it's, it's kept by itself. It keeps its own life. But if it would give its own life, if it dies, if it goes to ground, if it's given to the ground, buried in the earth, it will rise again. And this time it will bear much fruit. Right? It, will, it will bring forth a harvest but it must go to ground. It must die to itself. It must be put in the ground and irretrievably lost. Once it goes to ground, you can never get it back. It's destroyed in the giving of itself. But in the giving of itself, there's a harvest. There's a fruitfulness that comes from it. It's obvious that Jesus is speaking of his own death. It's obvious that he is speaking to even to their expectations. They, as, as they usher him into the city in this triumphal procession, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the son of David. Jesus, as the Greeks come and the hour is upon him and, and he's going to be glorified in this moment, he tells them this is not a political deliverance. It is not time to overthrow the Romans and reestablish the old order of things as you expect them. Now is the time for death. Now is the time for the giving of the seed. Now is the time for the laying down of life, that there might be a harvest. Right? He's speaking as he, as he speaks to the hour that has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The way to His glory is through the cross giver of life must die to establish his kingdom. Jesus does not give life until he satisfies eternal justice. The Son of Man came to pay the penalty for our sin in his own body. He came to satisfy eternal justice. There is no life for us until the penalty is paid, until justice of God is satisfied on our behalf. And so the seed comes that he might lay down his life irretrievably lost in one sense. To give himself in this act to satisfy the justice of God. To pay the penalty of our sin. To go to ground and die. So that there may be a harvest of life. Right? It's there in your bulletin under the second point. Mark chapter 4. Jesus says when the grain is ripe. At once he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Right? There is this harvest that Jesus is after. And the harvest is more important than his own life, so to speak. Now the harvest has come. Now is the hour. Second Thessalonians 2, there underneath, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, sisters, beloved of the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, right? By the sanctification of the Spirit, through belief in the truth that is a truth that is in Christ. 
that He is the Son of Man, the Son of God, who gave Himself on the cross to satisfy eternal justice and to pay the penalty for our sins. And He uses the language, first fruits is the language of harvest. We thank God for you because you're the first fruits, the first produce to come from a greater harvest that God has brought forth. Right? And so He sees the growing church and the, and the conversion of the world, the Gentiles. This is, the, this is a letter to, Thessal, to the church in Thessalonica, which is a church in Greece. The hour has come when the Greeks start seeking Jesus. Those who believe in Christ as God's Son and Savior are the first fruits. We become part of that harvest. You know, if the seed remains nothing but a bare seed, outside of the ground, it abides alone. If we seek to save and to keep the life of the seed, we lose the harvest. Right? That is what Jesus is saying about Himself, first and foremost. If I seek to keep and to save the life of the seed, I lose the harvest. But if it dies, there is abundant life. And that's where in verse 25, we have to see that at the core of this, in verse 25, that is what Jesus is saying. He is applying this then to His disciples. He's applying this then to you and I. Because in verse 25, he goes on to say, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever tries to keep and to save the life of the seed will lose it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for an eternal life. If it dies to this life, if it goes to ground, he says, it, it, it reaps a harvest of righteousness and eternal life and abundant life beyond what you could hope or imagine. Now it's obvious it's not in the exact same way that he applies it to us. We will not do what Jesus did. Our, our death and going to ground doesn't accomplish what Jesus does. But he is a pattern. And the scripture again and again calls him our pattern. That he gives us an example that we should follow. That we should be like Christ. Now there's a couple of things as we look to understand this verse 25, because the language chooses. He gives this natural image, and then he comes and, and he moves out of it, implies it to our lives. And a couple of things we need to know to understand this application. Right? And the first is that we have to see this as a restatement and application of what he just said. Right? That it that it is an application and, and restatement. That there's a very real sense in which the followers of Jesus must fall to the earth and die. Right? That we must follow Him in this. That if we seek to save and to keep the old life of the seed, we will lose the harvest. If we seek to keep and to save our lives, we abide alone and unfruitful. But if it dies, if we die, then there is a harvest to be had. If we surrender ourselves to Jesus, if it, like the seed surrenders itself to the ground to be irretrievably lost into this harvest that it will have, if we surrender ourselves to Christ, to irretrievably lose ourselves in, in the love and the worship and service of the Savior, he says there will be a great harvest. Second, when he says to hate 
this world, and this is, you know, one of those things as we read it, they're sometimes hard for us to wrap our minds around. Whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world. We need to understand that Jesus is using hyperbole. Right? It's an overstatement to make a point. It was not uncommon in, in Semitic and in, uh, in, in Eastern thinking to use this kind of idiom to express uh, not so much a literal hatred, because it, it wasn't, but rather to, to, to express comparison by hyperbole, by overstatement, to say it's not so much hating the one thing as it is to so love something else, to so prioritize something else, that it's almost as if you hate this life. He does it in Luke, it's there in number three in your bulletin. Luke chapter 14, he says, if anyone wants to come to me, and he doesn't hate his father and his mother and his wife, if you don't hate your children and your brothers and your sisters, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Right? He picks the family, every family relation, every, the closest relationships that human beings are capable of. Love me more, is what he's saying. It's not so much, again, he's not truly saying to hate your family. In fact, Jesus is teaching on love, we're to not only love our family, we're to love our enemies, right? So his, his teaching on love is profound and powerful, and there's no doubt that he's not saying to hate your family, but he is saying, he's saying, he only says it in comparison to himself. These are only things that can be said in relation to Jesus and his, and his kingdom, he says, when it comes to me and your children, it's me. If it comes to me and your wife, it's me. If it comes to me or your parents and what they're saying, it's me. Right? Love me more. Honor me more. Serve me more. I am your first love, your great love. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul. That's what he's saying. In all of your strength, in all of your mind. And if we give him all of our love, what's left over? Well, I would say there's all of our other love is converted and it's better and purer and more righteous and free from idolatry than it would be if we didn't love him first and best. He's talking about having a single, powerful, governing allegiance to him. So hating his life in this world means loving Jesus supremely. Being devoted to Jesus supremely. Right? And supreme devotion to Jesus means, as this text is bringing out, supreme devotion to Jesus means death to ourselves. Seed must go to ground. You almost have to hate your life in this world to love his kingdom, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To do that, there must be a letting go. There must be a breaking with. There must be a setting free, free to serve him, free to pursue his kingdom, to reinvest ourselves and reinvent ourselves in our resources. Galatians 2.20, this list of verses there, I don't know if they're in the right order under number three, but start with Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. 
right? I no longer live. It's like I hate my life in this world. My life in this t- and love for this world has ceased. I'm set free. I no longer live. Christ is everything. Galatians 6.14, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Right? It's almost like I hate life in this world. I've been crucified to it. It's been crucified to me. In other words, I'm dead to it. I'm set free from it. What it means is, again, not that I hate it, that I don't love the good gifts and the good things that God has given us. But we are delivered from its, its reign and its power over us. It's not what I live for. It's not what I serve. Those things can be nice. Those things can be nice gifts. They serve me. I don't serve them. I serve the Lord Jesus. And as far as those things, serve that purpose. Right? 2 Corinthians 5.15. After I've been crucified with Christ and I've been crucified to the world, and 2 Corinthians 5.15, Paul brings out, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Right? You see, that's what this whole thing is. Jesus died for us. He didn't live for himself. He lived the life that we failed to live so he could offer his life to pay the penalty for our sin. He lived and he died for others. And he says, my friends, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself and give yourself away. The love of our self-life dies and it is born again to serve and to follow King Jesus. To hate this world is to die to its values and its priorities, its goals, its motives, its loves. We're set free. 1 John 2, uh, 1 John 2, 15, there in your bulletin. I think it's the last one under that point. And John, the same author as this gospel, is writing a letter and he says similar things when he says, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. He's applying Jesus' statement over here that is, unless you hate your life in this world, you can't be my disciple. And so he, he writes to them as he's applying this, and he says, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Right? You can only supremely love one thing. Don't give your love, and so your life and resources to anything in this world, right? Love the Lord your God and give yourself to Him. You can't love the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not reigning supremely in you. And to love Him, to be crucified with Christ and to no longer live, to be born again unto a life that is in service to Him. A follower of Christ is crucified and loves and serves God. So our single, most powerful, governing purpose is to serve and follow Christ. And so, verse 26, he applies this, right? We've got this grain of wheat falling to the ground, a general principle that first goes to Jesus, but also applies to us. How does it apply to us? Well, you can't love your life in this world with that kind of passion. You need to love me. You need to die to yourself and give your heart to Christ. And he says, and he goes on to apply that, I believe, and if anyone then would serve me, he must follow me. If anyone wants to serve me, 
he must follow me. He said elsewhere, if you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, you must take up your cross and follow me. So when it says follow him here, I think it literally means to follow him in the way of the seed, in the way of the grain of wheat, to follow him in the way of the cross, that he has given his life irretrievably, laid it down in order to produce a harvest, that he calls us to irretrievably lay ourselves down, surrender ourselves to Christ, to his kingdom and to his purposes and to his values and his priorities and all of these things so that there might be a harvest through, through us and through our lives. And so when he says, if you want to serve me, you must follow me. You must be crucified with Christ so that you no longer live. So that you no longer live for yourself. That you live for him. So he comes down out of the clouds. And the issue is this. It's in this word. What will you serve? Whom will you serve? Because he says, if you want to serve me, and that is the question at the bottom of the heart and the soul of every believer. And the question is truly this, my friends. It, it, who do you want to serve? Do you want to serve Jesus? Right, that is what's posed in this. If he says, if you want to serve me, well then the question is, do you want to serve him? Do you want to serve Jesus? Have you died to to all the other priorities and things that would drive and govern your life to such an extent that whatever else I do, whatever other occupation I have, whatever other things that I must do as part of my life, am I going to serve Jesus in the course and above and beyond and in the midst of and over all of those? So even the way I do those things is a service and an honor giving to Him. Do you want to serve Jesus? We must answer that question. Has the Spirit awakened this desire? Has your hour come? Will you surrender yourself to Christ and like the grain of wheat falls to the earth? Will you surrender yourself to Christ, be irretrievably lost in love and service to Him? Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. The world is calling you to love it, to serve it, to love the things of the world, and it shows itself. I know where I see it in myself and have seen it over the years, my battle with myself to, to live, whether to live a self-protective life, you know. And for a long time I talked about that, you know, I protect my time, I, I protect my, my resources, I protect, you know, we, we do this, right? As Americans, we, we live very self-protective lives. We're very individualistic. We're very passionate about what we deserve and what we have earned and what is ours in terms of our time, in terms of our resources, in terms of even our, our families and everything else. I will protect. And we draw in and we protect ourselves, protect our hobbies and we protect our career, me time, me toys and me priorities. We stay at home or we go out to play, but rarely, rarely do we pour ourselves out give ourselves away, go to ground for a harvest bigger than my personal kingdom and personal pleasure and personal enjoyment and entertainment. My friends, what does Jesus say? Right? We must examine our Christianity. 
in the full light of Jesus' teaching, we must examine our lives and our Christianity. When Jesus comes to describe these things in so many of his other parables, I think of the sheep and the goats. You remember when Jesus says the day will come and it will stand, there will be sheep and goats, and, and the Father, the judge, is going to separate them and he's going to judge them. And he says the difference between the two, he says, is when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. In other words, you cared for me. You met material needs. You cared about the needs of the people around you. And you were active in meeting those needs and reaching out. When I was sick or when I was in prison, you visited me. You came. You visited me in my sickness, in my illness, in my time of need and loneliness. When I was, when I was in need, you were there. You welcomed the stranger. The list goes on, and, and you, can, you can follow Jesus' teaching right through. His, his idea of what it means to serve him is incredibly practical. It, it basically is this, everything you owe to Jesus Christ. He says, you don't pay to me. You could never pay me if your life depended on it. There, there's no way to pay Jesus back. It is all of grace. Give up on that whole thing. But he says, you know what? All that you owe me, what I want you to do is pour, your, pour it out on other people. Pour it out on the people around you. Don't pay me back. Love and serve. Love God with all of your heart. And then start loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Start giving it away. <laughs> Pouring yourself out. Use your gifts, the gifts that have been given. Use them on behalf of others. Invest the resources you have been provided. Right? Meet the needs that are before you. Love like Jesus. Jesus says a life devoted to self must die. A self-protective life must die. It must go to ground. It must be surrendered irretrievably to Jesus. Or it will remain alone. And it will remain unfruitful. What about you? Boyce quotes Mueller. George Mueller was a started several orphanages and gave his life to the care of uh, children who had no one. And he says this, there was a day, this is under your last point, there was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller, to his opinions, to his preferences, to his tastes, and to his will. I died to the world, to its approval, to its censure. I died to the approval or to the blame of my brethren, my family, my friends, and since then I have simply studied only to show myself approved unto God. What about you? Was there a day when you died? When you were crucified to the world and the world was crucified to you? A day when you were crucified with Christ and you ceased to live and Christ began to live and reign in you? You know, where do we find this life? Because I find, at least in my own life, this is a supernatural life. It's not something I can do or conjure up or, or pull off of myself. The only way to have this life is to live close to Jesus. right? Daily to be driven, to invest time seeking Him and to give ourselves to Him afresh. Every time we stand in worship, you offer yourself to Him. All you are and all that you have and all that you could give. I think our worship every week ought to be that, afresh abandoning ourselves, surrendering ourselves to Jesus irretrievably lost and given to His service, to be reminded and refreshed. 
and awakened and enlivened and filled with His Spirit and filled with His life to lose ourselves in a surrender and a love for Christ. You know, each of these statements bears a promise. Right in verse 24, he says, if the grain of wheat goes to ground, it'll bear much fruit. Right in verse 25, he says, if you lose your life in this world and hate your life in this world, you will gain it unto, you will keep it unto an eternal, abundant life. And he says, if you will serve me, then you will be where I am. And my Father will honor you. Will honor you. Will honor you with much fruit. He will honor you with eternal life. And He will honor you with the statement, well done, good and faithful servant. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come this morning confessing that more often than not, we live a self-protective life. More often than not, we are building our own kingdom and not yours. More often than not, we serve ourselves rather than our neighbors. More often than not, we love life in this world and all that it has to give us more than we love your kingdom and your coming. Father in heaven, I pray that you would meet us this morning and by your grace you would pour out your spirit on your people, that you would awaken us, that you would renew us, that you would lead us and set us free, that we might indeed surrender ourselves to you irretrievably, give ourselves to you in faith, in love, and so in service to the glory of your name and to the good, eternal life and fruit-bearing your people. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.